From the European Broadcasting Union in Geneva, this is the Eurovision News Podcast. In this episode, our focus will be on climate journalism. Reporting on climate issues in an impactful yet constructive manner is equally essential and urgent for public service journalism. Focusing on solutions, limiting negativity, and training our journalists to understand the broader picture is clearly one of the biggest challenges facing our industry. I'm Laurent Fratt, and we're in the studio with Justina Korczabinska, head of EBU News Strategy, and Catherine Dunn, co-author of the 2023 EBU News Report, titled Climate Journalism That Works. Catherine is currently the content editor at the Oxford Climate Journalism Network. Their conversation begins with Catherine sharing some of the difficulties climate journalists encounter when they report on the crisis, especially when other important news events are happening around the world. Let's have a listen. So at the moment we're recording this, the big story is the war Israel-Gaza, and so many climate reporters right now will kind of be taken off the climate story and we'll be covering that. And that's something we see all around the world. It, it, it mirrors in a lot of ways what happened when Russia invaded Ukraine. And it also is, is one of those things too, where there's so much climate science coming out, but journalists are, are really in a point where they're, they're trying to find new ways to cover this. They're trying to find new ways to bring it home to audiences, that climate change is dire, that it's affecting our lives, that it's very serious, that we should do something. You know, these are messages that journalists, but also their audiences have now heard for, for years, sometimes even decades. So we're really at a point where some of this information isn't new. What do we do with it? How do we talk to audiences about it? How do we make it new? How do we make it engaging? How do we help people kind of listen and, and connect to the information about climate change that they're getting. But I wanted to look back a little bit at the report that you have co-authored and worked alongside Dr. Alexandra Borhard and Felix Simon. And I was wondering now, reflecting on this report and its findings from the perspective of time, a few months, a lot of things have happened also uh, regarding the climate change. What would you say are the three most important messages from the report? If I had to pick three, I think one, it's not a guideline per se. You know, we have a list of these are things to think about. But one of the things I mentioned is you really need to have leadership here. That's something that really stuck out for me, even in trying to do this report. We talked to news leaders all over the world. And of course, the people you see quoted in the report made time to speak to us. But there was a lot of people who didn't. And it's sort of a telling example of the problem we have with climate change in newsrooms anyway, where it said, oh, I know there's a war going on. I have other things to think about. We had, you know, we had people say, oh, the audience doesn't care about this. The audience isn't interested, like straight up. And I really think, and that's something we come back to again and again in the network, we come back to with members. And And what's crazy, I think, is if you're in a room with quite senior people, quite senior news editors, it's not that they don't care, but everybody sort of, you know, some of the senior news editors, they're blaming the audience, the audience are blaming the media. Everybody's saying, oh, they're not interested, they don't care, they don't know how to cover this effectively. But what we have seen, and this is something we've, we've seen more and more kind of since the report came out, as people are coming back, they're giving examples, is that... The outlets that have invested in this in a holistic way, not necessarily just sometimes, you know, they launch a vertical, they launch a newsletter, and that does really well. 
but the ones who have launched it in a holistic way, which is this is something that is affecting all these different beats, they have seen results. They have seen that their audiences want to know about this. If they've asked their audiences, their audiences have said they do want to know about this. So, so that is one thing I really think. It does require leadership. Another thing that comes up is that the heads of news organizations or senior editors are often feel that it's become politicized. So there's this equation that if I advocate for us to cover climate change, it's like I'm now an activist. And you can really see this in North America, this is a, a much stronger fear, which is crazy to me because if a country is invaded, we cover it. If there's an election, we cover it. If something affects our audiences' lives in a serious, meaningful way, their food, their energy, inflation, economy, risk, we cover it. We have no qualms about covering those extreme disasters when they do happen. It's just about all the times in between. What do we cover then? So that's one thing. I think another thing, you know, maybe we'll talk about this later, is, is the hope, not fear idea, where through the report, Alexandra and Felix and I, we, we talked a lot about the field of climate communication and psychology, which journalists are kind of famous for, for not delving into the psychology around fields adjacent to them. So how are climate change scientists thinking about how they communicate? And one of the things they've figured out and they're talking about among themselves is when we scare people, quite legitimately, as it happens, but when we scare people, does that achieve what we need it to achieve? How much fear is an appropriate amount? Is guilt effective? Is shame effective? And as a journalist, depending on the kind of role you have in your newsroom, you may be thinking, well, how the article makes somebody feel isn't really my problem. If it makes them vote differently or whatever, da-da-da-da-da, a lot of journalists think that that's, that's not my issue. I'm there to cover what happened, and I don't go any further than that because that would be activism. But there's another way to look at it, which is investigative journalism is really a field that keeps this very close to its heart, right? Where we don't want to produce things that people just won't read. Why are we going in all this trouble if people are going to say, this is the same old depressing crap you told me yesterday. It scares me. It makes me feel dumb. I don't need to know it. And it's not going to affect anything about how I see the world. It's not going to affect my behavior. It's not going to affect who I vote for. So this is the other kind of conversation we were having is what can journalists learn from climate communication? And the big thing we can learn is that just scaring people and leaving it there is really not effective. And if there was a third one, there's quite a lot. But one of the things that stands out for me is local journalism and how important local journalism is, which is hard, right? Because local journalism pretty much around the world has been kind of diminished and its role in society has gone down and it's resource strapped. And yet when it comes to these big, big global issues and it comes to stories that feel close and effective and real and telling, local journalism has such an important role. And I think when local journalists apply for the OCGN, we're always very encouraging because we think, you know, they're incredibly important and they're often overlooked for those big marquee sort of jobs on, you know, your country's national broadcasters flagship show. When you're having a conversation about flooding and adaptation and biodiversity, a lot of this stuff, it's going to be really, really tangible at the local level. So... Those are three things. There's quite a lot more. Um, it's worth reading the report. <laughs>
Thank you, Catherine. I wanted to pick on two things you mentioned. So one is really the concept of fear and the news avoidance. And one of the persons you interviewed and the co-founder of the Oxford Climate Journalism, Wolfgang Blau, said he realized doing his study that, of course, it's natural for us to avoid very, very pessimistic news as a way to defend and protect yourself, protect your mental health. So news avoidance is not something that our audiences should be concerned about. It's almost a natural reflection for humans. What is, of course, a problem is the denial. I think this is the much bigger problem. So at the same time, if you remember the conversation with a journalist from Canada that has been struggling covering the forest fires for over three months, the journalist from Canada, he said that actually when people are constantly affected by the disaster, they didn't observe the news avoidance. They had a steady level of interest. So how how you reflect upon that? You know, there's a lot of topics that are affected by news avoidance. I mean, I think, yeah, that's, it's always going to be when people feel really personally affected by it. And countries that have been very, have experienced, you know, really, really over climate change impacts. Uh, Kenya might be a good example. There tends to be like the levels of concern tend to be higher and maybe there's a bit more support for covering it. So I think those moments when your country is on fire, they're very, very challenging in their own respect, the endurance, the safety of your reporters in all these ways. But I think it's really like what you do before that and what you do afterwards that we now really need to be talking about because take Canada, Canada's going to be on fire again next year. Hopefully it won't be as bad, but this is happening every year. So what do you do in between? And Australia, right? We're going to have a session coming up here between the Canadians and Australians talking about Canadian fire season is ending, Australian fire season is starting. What What is the approach to covering this? What is the context you offer? What are your procedures around this? And I think Taking a lot of those disasters, as horrible as it is from being a, a purely reactive state to being something more like, honestly, like elections, like we know this is going to happen every so often. How do we cover it? What is our approach? What kind of context do we have? What level of literacy do we have? When we're covering these fires, what is the appropriate time and the appropriate moment and level to give that context about climate change to people. Because there is a lot of disaster coverage that doesn't even mention it. I think CBC has actually thought a lot about this compared to a lot of other broadcasters. That was one thing we we realized in the report. But I mean, when you're on fire half the year, you you have to. <laughs> Thank you, Catherine. I'm sure that some of our listeners are wondering and might be potentially interested how to join that network, the Oxford Climate Journalism Network. So how does it operate? What do you have to do to become part of the network? Yeah, so the Oxford Climate Journalism Network, the core of what we do is these cohorts, we call them. They run for six months. We admit for each of those 100 journalists from around the world. So typically it's between 58 to 60 countries. It tends to be two-thirds kind of global south, but really from everywhere. And it's not a university course, but that's the closest kind of structure is we have every two weeks, we have a big sort of 
seminar with a climate expert, we're going to be doing a public one right before COP, is with Dr. Frederica Otto, who's one of the most prominent scientists when it comes to climate attribution, which has changed how a lot of newsrooms around the world talk about extreme weather disasters. So she does one of our, our lectures. She'll come for an hour. We'll have questions. It's all off the record. And then we're going to do one on climate disinformation today. Uh, we're going to, in two weeks, we're going to do climate in the courts. We do climate finance. And then in between that, we'll do a fireside chat. Whose country is having an election? There's always four countries having elections. We'll talk about how it's affecting the elections. We'll talk about how it's affecting agriculture, anything they want to talk about. We really adapt it to the group that we have. They give workshops to each other. We do help do a lot of preparation for COP, where we say we're going to have a session with two journalists. Bring your editor to the OCJN day, and this is something you put in your calendar, and we're going to talk, like, what are the big themes, and how should you approach covering COP so you don't stress yourself out? So it's really about not necessarily doing more climate stories, but just thinking about how it's shaping your beat, building that literacy. And now we're starting to see news organizations and countries in and of themselves do something similar to what we're doing in a smaller group, which is great because honestly, like we can't meet the demand. The demand is huge. So we just went through application season for 2024. So around this time next year, if all goes well, uh, we should put out, a, we'll put out a call and those who want to join us for one of two sessions in 2025 will be able to apply. Thank you, Catherine. Let's stay still with the journalist's perspective and maybe talk a little bit about the safety. So there are big pressures or growing pressures stemming from uncovering facts that may be uncomfortable for governments or industry leaders. In your recent LinkedIn post, you were referring to an essay of an Austrian journalist reporting on the auto industry in Austria and Germany. And you said, we know that this kind of reporting can be incredibly difficult and often requires a lot of bravery and can engender huge pushback and even harassment. Can you tell us more about what you're seeing there? Yeah, so I think this is the more intense and high level and sophisticated and serious the reporting gets, especially the investigative and political reporting and the higher climate rises up the political and business agenda, frankly, I think the more we see this and I mean, You could say this all over the world, but the per first place I would point to where this is incredibly high stakes and this kind of reporting can be very dangerous is Brazil. We saw journalists from The Guardian, Domin and Bruno, we saw them disappear, I believe it was last year. And we have a lot of uh, members who, who know them and a lot of members who have worked in the Amazon. And one of the striking things for me, obviously coming from Canada or you know coming even from Europe, you may think the big business interests that you might be reporting on, say you're reporting on the energy industry, some of the largest and most powerful, wealthy, often state-backed companies in the world. But of course, in, in Latin America and Brazil, a lot of what journalists are doing is investigating the agribusiness industry. And these, this is an incredibly powerful industry. It has close links to government. You know, you may have leaders who actively deny or undermine the existence of climate change the same time that they're undermining the credibility of journalists. So it's not just climate change journalism, obviously, that we're seeing, but yeah, this is a huge political and business story. And it's a lot of the stories are about 
the the powerful interests behind, you know, why haven't emissions come down for decades when we've known about this? Why? Why is that? And we can see that journalists face a lot of consequences for this. And obviously, where I'm based in the UK, the legal risks of doing this reporting are very intense and you need to have a legal department behind you. It's very, very difficult to do this kind of work as a freelancer because of the risk of being sued. Let's also talk uh, very briefly about the physical and mental health of journalists covering the climate or weather disasters. I mean, we all know that there is a hostile environment training for journalists working in war zones. Do we need a special training for journalists going to covering climate disasters? Because you can have all kinds. You can you can be covering the, the forest fire, you can be covering the floods, hurricanes. Um, what's the experience of the journalists you work with? Are they well prepared? Yes, I think you'd need this. Not not unlike the pandemic, journalists are covering things that you are personally affected by. So you have reporters in Canada, they're covering the wildfires while they're being evacuated themselves and while they're fleeing their homes. But, you know, I use Canada as, as an example, um, but that's kind of the case anywhere. I would say the physical is more easily acknowledged than the mental. In a way, we understand that a climate disaster is traumatic. And then it's traumatic probably for the people who covered it too. We know covering a war is traumatic. What is harder for people to get recognition on is, you know, without kind of going into examples that are too too revealing, but you know, when we have members say they're going into the Amazon and they're covering communities that have been really devastated for a lot of complex reasons. And, you know, they're seeing the impact on children. We have that a lot. Or we're seeing the impact on farming communities in northern Kenya year after year of drought. All their livestock is is dying. And it's a, it's a slow motion crisis. And people are covering the knock-on Im- mental impact of that region, right? They're covering the fact that people in these communities are committing suicide. And this is the kind of reporting that is a little bit less well-recognized and is very, very, very hard on journalists. And there's very little recognition of it. And there's a huge amount of guilt because obviously when you're reporting on a devastated community, you're focused on how that was for them. You're focused on their experiences. And it's very hard for a journalist to acknowledge that it had an impact on them. And I think, I kind of try and say this more and more and more because somehow I feel like people need to hear it. But, you know, I'm now in this job and and I help with leadership and I help with various things at the Institute. And, but now like being in rooms with hundreds and hundreds of journalists from incredibly different countries, incredibly different situations, you know, somebody who has had to flee their country because of political persecution as a journalist and somebody who's sitting in London, secondhand looking at pictures of, of Gaza, this... Yes, this is very different, but at the same time, the level of burnout, the level of mental distress, the level of just the mental impacts on journalists are so high. And maybe we can't count on governments or the public or the audience to care when our job is to tell other people's stories, but I think we should count on our own industry to care that a lot of good journalists are leaving the profession because they just cannot do it anymore. They cannot take it. And a lot of very senior climate journalists have left the industry 
because they can't take it anymore. And I think for them, it's not just the, it's not just the maybe the indifference of politicians that is really hard on a lot of people in this position. It's the indifference of their own colleagues. It's the lack of, you know, it's the lack of solidarity. It's the lack of reassurance that journalists have always kind of relied on to get through very difficult parts of the job. So I think this affects all journalists, but climate change journalists, they're very affected. They're very, very, very affected. And there's very little recognition of that. And there's very few resources right now because I try to keep a close eye on it that address specifically what they're feeling. Even though in the in the larger public, we know that climate anxiety is a huge thing. And we know because it affects how much people read our stories and how they engage with our stories. And if I could add one more thing to that, one thing that anecdotally you hear a lot, but I don't see much acknowledgement of it outside, is the secondhand exposure is also, you know, people think if you're sitting in, a, in an office block in, in London, writing about a war or writing about a climate disaster, you can't be affected, but you can. The unedited stream of images and photos, you know, people will be getting right now from the Middle East, but people are getting from these disasters. I, I don't see very much acknowledgement of that. When people are in disasters, they often say they, they're very, very focused. If they have the privilege of leaving, they know that they'll leave eventually, and they're very, very focused. The people who are sitting in the office block looking at uncurated images that we would never show the public, and they have no acknowledgement of the mental toll, that is a problem I think the industry is struggling with. And there's very little acknowledgement, and we we really need to do something about this. And that's for across conflict and, and across climate change, which are, of course, converging in a lot of ways. So that's one thing I would say is we need to start talking about and maybe develop the climate crisis uh, training, which is similar in nature, but as you said, kind of addressing some different aspects. The news report, as you mentioned yourself, was pointing to trying to bring coverage, which hooks people on hope and not fear. But you wrote on social that the search for positive climate stories can also, if not carefully done, open door to greenwashing, uh, which especially, you know, less experienced journalists can fall into. So what would be your advice here? Yes. Yeah, it's a huge challenge. I would say one thing we talk about. So the Solutions Journalism Network is one thing that gets talked a lot about. It's, you know, it's a solution and they always qualify It's not just about like telling a happy, fluffy story. It's also about the whole picture. One thing that has kind of, you know, I don't do that much reporting anymore, but clarified it in my mind about how I would think about reporting out a story if I was in this position. If I wanted to write a story that didn't hit the same beats of despair, but also wasn't greenwashing, Um, how would I do this? And we have Krista Meyer from the UCL Climate Action Unit come talk to us. And of course, they're dealing a lot with communication there, but they he talks a lot about agency, agency-based storytelling. And, you know, it reminds me of what my very first journalism teacher taught me when you're, you know, you're 17, 18, and they said, it's not a story unless it's someone doing something because. And because what they said from climate communication is, the only thing that changes behavior is seeing other people change. But at the same time, so many, you know, climate has, it has very little like one stop solutions. Once you get past 
lower emissions, stop using fossil fuels. And the struggle between keeping it local, keeping it personal, and the structural stuff, it's always going to be a tension. So I thought Chris's way of thinking it was very interesting because when you use it essentially as like, you want to tell a story about something that's affecting a community, it's not necessarily a good thing. Probably it's not a good thing. But when your starting point is someone doing something about it, regardless of if they'll be successful or not at the end of the day, but when your starting point is people doing things as a storytelling frame, I do think from when I've seen this done, like this tends to make the storytelling better and it tends to sometimes break through a little bit of this trajectory of we've got a fluffy, fun new startup and on the other hand, we've got paralysis. So a couple good examples of when I've seen this, uh, stories that are not greenwashing, but yet have a little bit of this agency focus, the solutions focus is the New Yorker did, they did a climate solutions issue and they did a story about electricians. And I loved this story about electricians. And I sent it to everyone I knew because it was about all of these people realizing that we're going to need a lot more electricians and people changing their careers, people retraining. And it was just about being an electrician. Finally, it felt like here's a climate story I can send to a lot of people I know who aren't interested in this. And yeah, it sounds, you know, it sounds boring, it's about an electrician, but when you get into it, it's such a bigger story than that. Or one of our members, Yardena um, Haretz, he did a story about heat officers. And we just had this discussion, so he integrated a lot of this into it. And he, the UN heat officer, who's a Greek woman, who used to be the heat officer of Athens, and other people have, have done this as well as a story about heat officers around the world. What are we doing to make cities cooler? And it was not a fluffy story by any means. It was not a story that glanced over how hot cities are going to be. It was just a story that put people at the center of it. And this is something, when I've seen these stories, I've thought like, these are really a breath of fresh air. And they give you that accountability for like, does this actually make a difference? Because I think um, Gerard said in his story, like, you do have to be asking yourself constantly, are, are emissions actually gonna go down? And every time you hear about carbon capture, every time you hear about recycling, every time you hear about offsets, you have to ask yourself, are emissions going to go down because of this? And usually the answer is, in the best case scenario, they'll stay the same. So no, they won't go down. But it's a hard challenge, and I've been there myself, writing about climate change and having your editor say, oh, have you got anything kind of positive to say? Because we're a little bit, <laughs> this is a bit of a downer. And yeah, it means you could you could end up writing a lot of very fluffy stories if you're not careful. And the last question, Catherine, according to you, does public service media have a special role in covering climate crisis? Yes, I think it does. It really does. And that's because public service media has such a clear mandate, which is that its audience is the public. It's not audience is not what people want to buy or what people want to pay for, or its audience is what does this audience need to know? I mean, that's the same challenge, right? Because when you speak about your, when your audience is everyone, Um, and when you have, you know, when you are funded by the state and there's a level of, in some countries, political interference, this is a huge challenge. But I do think public service media, in a way, should have that clarity at the center of what they do, which is that our job is to give information to the public that they need 
that is shaping their lives in the best way possible. And if climate change is affecting their lives, which it is, it's our job to cover it. That end of story, right? Then how you do it, what you put into it, how many resources, da da da, you can go. But if you say, this is fundamental to our mission and why we exist. And I think it is, I think it is for every organization, but for public service media, I think that's very, very clear that this, this should be something they're doing. Catherine, thank you very much for being with us today on the Eurovision News Podcast and, and thank you for, for sharing. Thanks so much for having me. We hope you enjoyed this episode. If you would like to hear more, please consider subscribing, leaving a review, and telling a friend about us. The music was created by Mickey Curling, and Martin Lonnesser took care of the sound. Thank you from all of us.